I'm thrilled to be here with Decca Aitkinhead, who is a journalist and author of All at Sea, and who's just won Interviewer of the Year for an article she wrote this year for The Guardian. So I'm thrilled to be with you, Decca. Thank you, me too. And grateful for you to talk about something that is so intensely intimate and private, um, which is the death of your husband, Tony. And I wondered if we could just start, and it must be every time you say it, it kind of hits you again and it hits me again, but if you can say what happened. It's funny, it's been a while since I've described what's happened, and if you're describing it, if you're talking about it a lot, somewhere you become fluent in it in a way that gives you a degree of detachment, and I realised just now that actually it's a long time since I told anybody this story, and it's... uh, and. I realise there's something to be said for doing it a lot because it becomes easier and if you leave it a while then it feels freshly shocking, I suppose. Um, because when it's f- when you say it a lot, it's almost like you're telling a story about somebody else. That's precisely right. It becomes a story. And that was one of the things I was slightly concerned about, about writing a book about it because I did worry about turning it into a story, a piece of writing. Um but I guess it's been a while now since I've done this or written about it, and it no longer does feel like a story anymore. It feels much more um, intimate again and raw. Oddly, with the passage of time, it feels more raw. Um, but the, what happened in very simple terms is uh, Tony and I were on holiday with our two young sons, who were at the time four and three, and we were staying in a little cottage on a beach in a small village called Treasure Beach in Jamaica, which we knew and loved very well. We'd been there, I'd been going there for 20 years. Um, and we'd been there for about 10 days, and that morning dawned just like every other morning of the holiday, and Tony was making coffee when a friend happened to walk past. And Tony said, oh, let's go and have coffee on the beach. So they walked down the path to the beach, which is just about 20 yards and uh, and Jake, our four-year-old, went with them. But he was still in his pyjamas. He wasn't going swimming or anything. It was just, it was a very sleepy, peaceful morning. And Jake went paddling at the water's edge. And uh, while Jake, while Tony, his dad, sat talking to a friend, drinking coffee, just a few feet away from them on, on sun lounges. Uh, and Jake paddled out. Jake didn't know how to swim at that point. Um, and he was just sort of paddling knee-high, and he took one more step, assuming um, that the sand would shelve in a very shallow way, as it had done on every other day of the holiday. You could normally walk out about 40 feet before you were out of your depth. But what none of us knew was that a riptide had developed overnight, which increases the depth of the water very dramatically, and it's, it develops this powerful suction pulling you out to sea. So one moment, Jake was kind of ankle-deep in his pyjamas paddling, and the next moment, he was being swept out to sea oh and calling to Tony for help. And I saw this from the balcony of our cottage, and Tony raced into the sea. And, of course, I sprinted to the beach. But, I mean, before I'd even got to the beach, Tony had him in his arms, and the whole drama seemed completely over. It was such an incidental something-and-nothing moment. You know, a bit of a, bit of a moment, but nothing more. Sort of thing that you expect to go few afterwards. That exactly, was a bit... exactly. You know, you would have forgotten it by lunchtime, that kind of a thing. Only then I'm waiting on the sand for Tony to come out of the sea with Jake and I realise now he's in trouble too and he's shouting help to me and I'm into my amazement I see that he's out of his depth as well. So I just plunged into the water and swam to them and it wasn't very far and it didn't take more than a couple of moments and 
we didn't even say anything to each other. Tony just handed me Jake. And because I'd been taught life-saving back at school as a teenager, you know, 30 years earlier, I just flipped Jake on his back and I cupped his chin in my hand and started to swim on my back for sure. And again, that should just have taken a moment or two, but we just seemed to be swimming for an extraordinarily long time. And I turned to look to the beach, thinking we must be there by now. And the beach was just inexplicably far away. And at that point, I began to really panic and thought, God, we are caught in a riptide unlike anything I've ever known before. But Julie, even then, I didn't think this is a life or death emergency. I didn't even think about Tony. I was just very focused, thinking, oh, God, I'm going to have to swim really hard oh, now. Yeah. And I'm a good swimmer. And the sea was calm. The beach was deserted. There was no sense of terror or drama or emergency. It was just a sense of, wow, you're going to have to really swim properly now. And we swam and we swam and we swam. And eventually I could feel the sand on my toes and I hoisted Jake onto my waist and we kind of waded out and I plonked him on the sand. And he wasn't too frightened. It had been an unusual experience, but not a terrible one. And right up until this point, I just think this is of nothing wildly significant is happening here. And I put him on the sand. I said, you OK? And he said, yeah. And I turned expecting to see Tony walking out of the sea behind us. And that's the moment when everything changed because I turned and and he wasn't walking out of the sea. He was nowhere near us. He was about 50 feet offshore now. And he was just lolling in the waves and he was calling for help, but his voice sounded strangely muffled. And he raised his arm once or twice, kind of trying to gesture for help, but then it just kind of flopped down again. And so without thinking, I just raced to go back into the water. And at that point, I heard somebody shout, no! And I realised it was a fisherman who we knew in the village. And he pointed, and there were two other friends of ours who were already trying to get Tony in the water. And it would have been crazy for me to get back in. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? I say that now, even almost sort of slightly defensively, I still have to tell myself it would have been crazy to go back into the water. And yet it felt equally completely surreal to stand on the shore, kind of pointing and shouting. And the strange kind of confusion sets in, Julia, you know, I'm looking at these two people swimming. They are clearly swimming to Tony to try and save him. And yet they couldn't seem to get to him because the riptide's pulling him as fast as they can swim towards him. The riptide is pulling him away. away. And at this point, I'm aware that the beach is suddenly, people are streaming out of the cottages on the beach. There's only about half a dozen cottages on the beach. It's a tiny little place. But suddenly I can just see people flying from everywhere, from every direction, and they've got life, life rings and, and floats and ropes. And there's this colossal commotion taking place. And eventually the two swimmers, the fishermen in the water, reach Tony. Somebody gets a life ring to them. Myself and a friend from the cottage next door stand in the surf and we've got the end of this rope, kind of like a tug-of-war team, and we just pull, pull them in. But, and even at that point, and it's funny, to this day I feel so ashamed of this emotion or this response... What I was really feeling then was a bit embarrassed that we just caused this slightly ludicrous spectacle and this big old drama because at that point I thought it was all over. It's fine. There's, there they are. They're all, Tony never went underwater. It was just a bit embarrassing. 
And as I say, I'm so ashamed that that was actually what I was really thinking. Mm. And I don't know to this day whether that was a defence mechanism in my mind. Maybe at some level I knew something more serious was happening. I just don't know. All I know is that I felt a bit self-conscious at having created this commotion. And we pulled them ashore and Tony lay on his back on the beach. And it was right up to that point I hadn't even thought about Jake who'd been sitting on the sand, our son, watching this ever since I'd brought him out of the sea. And I said, Jake, are you okay?" He said, no, I'm worried. And he pointed towards his dad and he said, what's that stuff coming out of his nose? And I didn't know what he meant and I turned. And there were these two long, thin trickles of what looked like whipped egg white, kind of foam, the thing you make a meringue from. And they're dribbling from his nostril down his chin and And it really wasn't until that moment that I knew something truly catastrophic was unfolding in front of me. And I mean, I I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what it signified. But it was clearly very sinister and something really awful had happened. And at that point, men are standing around Tony and they're trying to administer CPR. and, And even at that stage, again, I don't know to what extent... My brain was defending myself from what was happening. But I said to Jake, I th- with the thought I had is, oh, God, Tony's going to have to vomit some awful great big river of seawater. That's what's happening here. And that would be horrid for Jake to see. So I said to Jake, well, we'll walk away and we walk back up to the cottage. And Jake's younger brother, who's three, is wondering where everyone's gone and what's happening. And then we walk back down to the beach. And a friend of ours who'd been phoned by somebody who lived on the beach, who hadn't realised it was Tony, who'd just phoned her and said, there's somebody in trouble. She arrived as we walked back down, and even then I think everything's fine. Everything's going to be fine. She's here. She knows. She has medical training. She knows what she's doing. And I just watched her kneel over him and put her two fingers to his pulse. And that was the first time my brain allowed the possibility that that this was actually a life-or-death situation. And I just watched her rest her fingers on his neck and wait and wait and wait. And then she looked up at the crowd gathered around and she just shook her head. And then... It's like the shock of it is still in your body these years later, that you can only allow moments of it to sink in. I think it's extraordinary what you do to defend yourself from the horror of it, because it's almost four years ago. But you need to defend yourself. I think I'm better able now to acknowledge and respond to the absolute horror of that situation than I was partly shock anaesthetises you. It needs to. And it needs to. It's there for a good reason. It would be too much. I think I was anaesthetised for a long, much longer than I realised. You know, with the passage of time now, I picture that scene. And it's more horrifying than it was in real time, which seems absurd, doesn't it? It seems more shocking than it did. I mean, I could feel it in my body. I can feel it seeing you as you were seeing it. I could see it. (laughs) 
And yet even then I'm watching her head shake. And I, of course I understand the significance because I'm holding hands with a four-year-old and a three-year-old who have no idea what a pulse is. They don't know why she put her fingers to hit to their dad's neck. They don't know what it means. And maybe for as long as they didn't know, I could almost pretend it wasn't happening. And we just, I just had this overwhelming urge to just lead the boys away from this scene. And I led them away from what was now a crowd of hundreds of people. It's a small, oh, literally, I mean, it's a tiny village. Word spreads incredibly quickly and, and half the village was there on the beach. And it was, again, a kind of form of sort of extraordinary denial. I just said to myself in my head, She's just, they're wrong. He's not dead. Hmm. It's just a complete mistake. And yet at the same time, I'm leading my children away from the scene as quickly and as calmly as can. From yes. the fact that their dad is These dead. strange parallel narratives taking shape in your mind. So half of my brain is saying, this isn't happening and she's wrong. And of course he isn't dead. And the other half of me is thinking, I want to get Jake and Joe away from the crowd as quickly as I can. And as we walked up to the cottage, I remember, I don't know who it was, somebody flying through our garden path towards the beach. And I just heard him say, I'm dead. And even at that moment, I'm hearing somebody say the words and I'm just thinking, no, no, you've all just made a terrible mistake. A terrible, terrible, short-lived mistake. And... In a minute, Tony's going to sit up. And it was completely surreal. I look at Jake and Joe, and Jake's still wearing his pyjamas and all caked in sand. It just seems so unimaginable to me now that this is what I said or did at that moment. I said, oh, Jake, you're all covered in sand. Let's go and shower the sand off you. And it just seems so mind-blowing that that was... But it's almost as if if I do a normal thing now, then I can cope. I'm going to make the world normal. Bonkersness. Everything's going to get normal again if we just behave as if it's it's so. It's just extraordinary. Anyway, we walked into the bathroom, and I remember sitting on the edge of the bath and taking the shower hose in one hand and looking up and seeing my friend Annabelle standing in the doorway, and she just stood in the doorway and she shook her head. And, of course, Jake and Joe still didn't understand what she was saying. Mm. And I don't remember what... I don't quite... The next thing I remember Jake is happening is Jake just saying... I remember kind of falling into Annabelle's arms and Jake saying, Why is your face like that? And then Joe, who was just three, he just kind of curled himself around my leg. And he looked... Up a minute, he said, Has he died? Mm. And it was Joe saying it that made it impossible to disbelieve. Pre- yeah, to disbelieve or to pretend anymore. You know, I'd seen. Has he died? I said, Yes, he's died. Yeah. But that was nearly four years ago, and to suggest that that's at the point at which I recognised that it was true. <laughs> oh my God. But maybe there's part of you that doesn't even. I wonder quite that know now, now because if we'd had this conversation two years ago, I think I would have said, "I know now that he's dead and he's not coming back." In the way that I will, I can say that to you now, but I don't think it would have been true two years ago, and I don't even know if it's true now. I don't know. I mean, it's such a 
Technicolor story, I can see the beach and the sea and Tony and the sand and the shower and the disbelief. And I, I suppose I feel a bit frozen, so I almost can't find words. But also, could you say how it's changed you? Because you can't live through these experiences. Without them changing you? No, no, you can't. Um, I don't want to sound melodramatic in the answer to the question. But I think... I also don't want this to be the truthful answer. <laughs> but if I'm honest, utterly honest, I don't think anything about me is the same. I haven't really thought about this before until you asked that question, but if I really search myself, it's very difficult. I mean, of course, there are lots of things that superficially remain unaltered, of course. You look the same, you sound the same, you still get up in the morning and go about your life. But my... Your internal world. My looks... internal world, the world that you can't see by looking in the mirror or see if you're sitting next to me on the bus, is so fundamentally and uh, profoundly altered. As I say, much more, I, I, I hesitated to say that partly because it sounded slightly preposterous and more to the point because I don't want that to be true. But really, I, yeah, I would find it very difficult to identify a part of my internal world that has remained unaltered by that experience. Um, and it's a difficult one, Julia. I mean, you'll know this better than everyone. anyone. People talk all the time about not wanting to be defined by grief. I've heard lots of people say this. And I really understand what that means, and I don't it, either. People don't want to feel a victim, isn't it? You don't, don't want, want to, to feel, feel a victim. You don't want to feel... Um, That's all it is. Exactly, in the same way that people say they don't want to be defined by disability, they don't want to be defined by losing a leg, they don't, and and I'm absolutely in that category. But I also think it's unrealistic to pretend that I haven't, that I ha it hasn't profoundly shaped me. Um, I think I was. Um, I wrote a, about it in the kind of twelve months after Tony died, but I haven't actually read what I wrote for a long time, and I had a look, a sort of skim last night and that profoundly shocked me the extent to which I have become so used to becoming, to, to being widowed to being a single mum, to being the person who lived through that that I'd almost forgotten that there was another version of me that existed up until Before. that day in May in 2014 and it was only reading that I was suddenly reminded that this person that I've become accustomed to in these circumstances in this life and all that comes with it now seems so normal to me that I had completely... I had stopped noticing <laughs> that it isn't who I used to think about myself. Now it is how I think about myself. There are so many aspects of what you said that I could take each one and talk about an hour about each of them. <laughs> and I think it is this... I don't think fully recognised 
um, I don't know if it's a contradiction or process that in grieving we remain ourselves and yet become something entirely other and people often talk about the new me or the the after me or and certainly when I've worked with with other families where a partner has died one of the biggest things and most complex aspects of renegotiating themselves is how they parent alone that's absolutely as I was saying you know I feel completely fundamentally altered I realize I'm really talking absolutely about myself as a parent more than anything and I have become so habitualized to single parenthood now that in my mind it's indivisible from parenthood it is my experience of being a parent but actually it's very specifically about being a single parent um, and I forget that sometimes and often when I'm talking to other parents we're both we're all talking about parenting as if parenting it's as if the same the par- for everyone. Precisely. As if it's absolutely equivalent whether there's one of you or two of you. And it uh, absolutely isn't. And I, I was so shocked looking at my book last night and reading myself describe the transition from being one of two parents to being one parent. And at the time when I was writing that, it was so raw and so new. And now I've... And I I was so acutely conscious that last week there were two of us and that's what being a parent felt like. And now there's one of us. And it's it's not a different version of parenting. It feels like a completely different world, different identity experience. So I almost feel as if I became a parent the first time when my children were born. Hmm. And I, my whole identity as a parent started all over again on the day their dad died. There is almost nothing about the first experience of parenting and the second experience that um, has remained unaltered. And it's this... If I had to kind of try and boil it down into one thing or one experience or sensation, it's this crushing, suffocating, almost unbearable sense of responsibility. It's... And, of course, you know, when we all become parents... I mean, I remember thinking this when I became a parent, when my kids were born. Of course, you know, everybody has that shock. But the difference between becoming a parent with somebody else and becoming that child's only parent, it's just shattering. Um, And it informs... Everything, partly just on the kind of boring, mundane, banal practicalities. There's no way out, is there? There's no way out. You are never off duty. And nobody on the planet will ever feel the way that you do about your children. Mm. And, of course, I'm not sentimental about co-parenting. You know, like every other couple under the sun, Tony and I wanted to do things differently. We have very different experiences in our own childhood very different experiences of being parented. Um, so, and, and then it's a terrible mistake to kind of posthumously sentimentalise that. And of course, you know, there was times when Tony would look at me in amazement or I'd look at him in amazement. Um, but that isn't what I'm aware of. When you talk about the crushing responsibility, but, it's <sighs> this absolute 
sitting with the loving them as much as you do the f- both and the caring. responsibility as much as you do and there is nobody else on the planet, as you said. Which seems extraordinary. I remember in the first so, year. And that's what's different from divorce. I know I interrupt. Yes. That, yes, it is different from divorce. And I mean, I, you know, I know I have friends who are divorced and sometimes I think, gosh, I think in many ways my experience of single parenthood is easier than yours. Mine doesn't contain conflict. It doesn't contain sort of resentments or bitterness. Or other or women or men. Or... Precisely. And there is no confusion about loyalty for my children. And they're not, you know, in many ways, the practical lived day-to-day experience of being a single parent as a widow, I think, is much easier than a divorcee if you're unfortunate and, and relationships are complicated. And but, people often talk about, I wish she was dead. Yeah. I wish she was dead. It would be easier. Yeah. And I can really see that in many practical ways, it would be. I, uh, and emotional ways. I really, I Get don't that. underestimate that. But there is something about how many million billion people are there on the planet now? I lose count. Is it seven? I, I don't know. Is it no, six? Is it eight? Is it? It's a really big number. <laughs> Sixty I, million in the UK. It just seems incomprehensible. And I remember reeling from this in the first year after Tony died. How is it possible that there can be several billion people on the planet, and the only person who can meet these two boys' needs? is me. I can't contract this out. I can't share it. I can't delegate. The weight of responsibility that there is not one other human being alive on this planet who can satisfy their needs just is unimaginable. And of course, two out of several billion actually isn't very many either. But when there were two of us, I never even thought about it. It all felt congruent and balanced and manageable um, and just right. And it's and the, the psychic part of it, isn't it, as much as, you know, there is the thing of, who, you know, whose turn is it to get up and the, the battle mm. of all of that. But really it's the psychological weight. It, that's just it. It's the, it's the psychological weight, of course. You can always pay somebody to take your children to the park. Yeah. You can pay somebody. Or you to have take, other family that or can other, help or godparents it, it, or all So sorts you of can things, delegate friends. all of that. You can share all of that. And my God, where would we be without, without friends, all of the friends? I mean, they mm. have just been extraordinary and we wouldn't be here without them. But what they can never be for my children is a, parent. Is a substitute parent. And they can come very close. And my gratitude to those who have and what they mean to our family. My Mm. God, there are no words for that. But there is a natural ceiling beyond which they can't represent to my children something equivalent to a parent. And that will, uh, the, the, you know, my children will have important people in their lives until the day they die. And the more they can have and the more important. And our life has been very much about um building those relationships for those kids but it's just extraordinary that we can be as lucky as the luckiest people in the world and we can be blessed and we are mm. in ways that are humbling and and just extraordinary but at the end of the day <laughs> again it sort of seems unfathomable but at the end of the day Nobody can ever, nobody can ever replace their dad. 
And that just... That dad-shaped hole. Uh, as I'm saying these words, I'm realising that if I were had listened to this, if I had listened to somebody saying all these words five years ago, I think I would have sort of thought, well, well, yeah, obviously. I mean, you only have two parents, and yeah, but but actually those roles are replaceable in all kinds of ways. People can fill those Step roles. parents, daddy, dad. Precisely. I think I would have thought, I think if I'd heard myself just say what I said five years ago or four years ago, any time up till the day this happened, I think a bit of me honestly would have thought... A bit overdramatic. It's a bit over the top. Come on, let's be real. You know, families come in all kinds of different shapes and sizes and people perform all kinds of different roles for children. And this just sounds a bit a bit overdramatic or kind of making more of it than it needs to be made. And I know that's what I would have thought. And even as I'm saying these words now, they don't really sound adequate to the thing that I'm trying to describe. It's really frustrating. Um, it's the irreversibility, It's the it? irreversibility. It's the permanence. You cannot get this back. There's that's nothing what's you so can shocking. do. No matter, everything can go... Completely according to plan. Brilliantly for the rest of my kids' life. In every conceivable application of their lives, they could be the happiest, luckiest kids on the planet. But there is nothing that I or anyone else can do to put right what happened on that day. And that is quite a difficult thing to do, If particularly if you're like me, someone slightly prone to delusions of omnipotence. You know, I think, OK, here's a problem. If we Sorry. really put our, we, we're going to put our minds to this, we're going to be resourceful, we're going to be inventive, we're going to deploy everything we've got at our disposal, and we are going to work at it tirelessly, somewhere we're going to cobble together some kind of a solution. And it has, uh, I don't know if that's, arrogant maybe it really was but that sort of was my relationship with the world up until this point and to be confronted by something that you can do nothing about was I've got to be it was shocking and it's taken me a long time to come to terms with it that it's just a truth I can't do anything to reverse what happened and people often talk about children who are bereaved as, you know, children are amazing, they bounce back. They're they, so resilient. They're so resilient. <laughs> and there's truth in that. Yeah. And yet there is this fundamental, for them, dad-shaped space that will always be missing. What do you... Because in a way we've talked about what it's been like for you parenting without their dad. What do you, when you look at them now and they're happy kids, they're doing well at school and they haven't got behavioural problems, but what do you think the impact on them has been? God, I think about this question every day, Julia, and I wonder about it. Um, I mean, in quite sort of superficial terms, I often think if it had to happen, and I don't mean... I think it had to happen for some sort of reasons of yeah, destiny, God, or anything, you yeah. know. But if we're taking this as an event, um, I do thank God it's not happening now when they're eight and six rather than four and three. Because I think I think it's fair to say, you know, when they were four and three, I don't want to under underplay or <laughs> under um, understate or estimate the force of what happened to them or the significance of it. And as I say, I think 
you know, I know that it will play out in different ways every day for the rest of their lives. You know, when they are 60, this will still have a bearing on them when they're 70, when they're 80. But they didn't have to grieve in the way that they would grieve now if he were gone. And for that, I am truly grateful. Um, I may in time come to, to come to change my position on that. But I think to lose a parent age four or three is... A sort of magical thinking. Precisely. Everything about the world is kind of bizarre and mm. surreal and unexpected at that age to some extent, whereas were it to happen now, I fear that the impact on them would be much, much worse right now. And as I say, that's not to under, underestimate their loss, but I do think that's one mercy. Um, how has it affected them? Since part of the complicating factor is that, I mean, my son is eight now. When I was nine, my mum died. And for the next, certainly 20 years, if you'd asked me what had been my experience of that loss or how it had affected me, I would have looked you in the eye and with absolute clarity and certainty said, it has not affected me in the slightest. <laughs> and I wasn't lying in the sense, you know, I, I absolutely believe that. And in the last sort of 15 years or so, I've realised how profoundly wrong about that I was. But I can't answer the question yeah. about how it's going to affect me. I mean, You're I probably better placed to answer that question, Julie, than I am. I think, well, what I, what I sort of talked about in my um, book, Grief Works, was how the relationship of the child whose parent has died and as an adult relationship, it evolves and changes over time. You know, so my parents' generation was very much what you don't think about, what you don't talk about isn't going to hurt you, don't remember, just move on. And what we know as human beings is much more complex than that, that the relationship, the person has died and you have to grieve the reality of their death and as we've talked about just now, the permanence of it, which is in itself a huge kind of process to get your head around. Can I ask you a question? Mm. Is there any merit to the philosophy of your parents' generation? I'm the kind of school that says... No. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. Oh. I'm the school that says that there is no one right way or wrong way to grieve. I mean, what we know is that 15% of all psychological disorders come from unresolved grief. I think... The best that can happen from my parents' generation, and my mum was one of them. She had her mother, her father, and her sister and her brother all dead by the time she was 25, which may not be a complete coincidence. I do the work I do. <laughs> um, she cut it off, and she sort of functioned, but her capacity to feel got foreshortened because if you her cut off... Her spectrum narrowed. Her bandwidth of experience narrowed because if you cut off pain you also incrementally, without realising, cut off your capacity to feel joy. So you can live quite effectively. You get to work, you can go to yeah. Sainsbury's, you can do the stuff. But your engagement, your sense of um, capacity to give love, receive love, is, in my book, foreshortened. And for some people, that might be the best option. Mm -hmm. 
um, certainly that generation, you know, they were survivors of the Second World War. They, they fought in the Second World War, my dad, and their parents had fought in the First World War. Biologically, they had to survive, and there was no one who was going to help them sort of adapt to the grief process. Everyone was grieving. so And that contraction of bandwidth felt like a price worth paying. Definitely, because they Quite had to deal. get on, mm. keep calm and carry on. I mean, I think they had no choice. I think we have a luxury to mourn now in a way that probably no generations have had before, in that we have a much greater understanding of grief. We have far more research about grief. We know much more about what helps and what hinders it. And we now have a society which is just beginning to talk about it. You know, so I think it is still very much taboo, and it's one of the things I'd love to ask you about. But I think, well, certainly the reaction to my book and your book shows that there's the beginnings of a conversation that people are interested in. And yet, you know, I'm very aware that when we talk about, when I'm with my boys and we talk about their dad, he's just part of everyday conversation. That's very important to me. Um, And another thing that's very important to me is that he's not, posthumously deified. No, he doesn't become a god. He doesn't become this strange, unrecognisable creature. So my kids are actually much more comfortable laughing about stupid things that their dad did or silly things. They're really comfortable with that. And so we will do that. Well, you say it's lovely, Julia, but it's interesting that often it makes people feel quite uncomfortable. I think they think it's disrespectful. Yeah. He should be a little god. Yes. Or big god. Exactly. Yeah, I've noticed people find it slightly... It makes them uncomfortable. Whereas if they do what they would like to do, which is talk about talk to the boys about their dad in their rather hushed, reverent tones, oh your father was my kids hate that. They feel instantly uncomfortable and distrustful. They don't like solemnity or reverence. Because of course there was no solemnity or reverence in their relationship with their father. Of no. course there wasn't. No, um, he was very real. Exactly. And yeah. Human. So but it does, but I'm aware that it makes people feel un comfortable and there are lots of things in their dad's past um which already I've wanted to kind of feed into my kids consciousness or memory or understanding of him you know my their dad had a very very difficult child and a very difficult youth and he was sent to prison for a long time and he was engaged in all kinds of crime and he had an addiction problem for a long time before they were born and you know there's a big mixture of a picture and I don't one of the very difficult challenges, again, because now that I'm solely responsible for his story, because he isn't here to share it with them and tell them and for them to learn it incrementally from him. So I'm now that kind of gatekeeper to that story. And I'm ter- one of the biggest problems for me is knowing when and quite how to feed that information in, because I don't want them to have one picture of their dad in their head and then there to be a kind of big reveal, a sort of divulging of information which shatters that picture and is irreconcilable with, I don't want them to have to go through that. But equally, I don't want to burden them too soon with information um, that would be age-inappropriate or difficult for them to to get their heads around. And so it's very... So we have started already with a little bit. They do know that he was sent to prison and we kind of touch on that and then we talk about it for a while and then it drops off the agenda and then we come back to it. But I think that sounds perfect. I mean, I think you, over time, you weave 
a truthful story. So yeah. children need as much truth as adults. Yeah, exactly. In age-appropriate language. So they need the language that they can understand that's concrete, that he's dead, he's not in heaven. I mean, he may be in heaven in people's belief system, but, but he died first. But not in mine and not in theirs. And, yeah. yeah, but the heaven could be a hamburger joint, so it can be very confusing. <laughs> you know, they could. It's you can come back, or people talk about lost. You know, they lose things every day, but they find them again. So it's... But the key is that you are creating a relationship with him that they are building inside themselves so that so that the relationship and their love for him continues and it has to be with the real version of him and not yeah because if he if they find out when they're 25 that he went to jail and you never told them then they distrust everything you've said of course they do and i don't think it has to be promiscuous honesty that you say every fart Mm -hmm. and you know (laughs) sure thing but i think the basics of the story need to be true so that there's never any kind of great revel there's no turning it upside down precisely um i mean i have a kind of horror of family secrets but also that kind of great revelation revelatory moment that changes everything that you thought you knew i really want to avoid that if we can and for this just to be a kind of an evolving narrative Mm. that never takes some completely unexpected turn twist or turn mm. but then you know julia i mean somebody a teacher at school mentioned that jake had been saying to kids in the playground that his dad had been to had been to prison and i thought oh god have i done this too early is that i don't it's so difficult judging the point at which he's old enough to judge it for himself when to be open and when exactly and again with all these I things think, i mean it's like all parenting i mean you just do your best yeah and Work it out. I don't. I mean, I think you never feel. Whoever feels as a parent, you know, I got. Oh, I got that hundred percent right. <laughs> Go me. I think we all are just trying our best and make a mess. Do it okay. You're learning as you go along. What is the? I'm slightly changing the, maybe the, tempo, but also. Sure. What are the things that people have said to you? If you can think of one or two things that people have said to you that have been really helpful, but also at other times really unhelpful. About a year after Tony died, a friend of mine got me to go and have a coffee with a friend of hers who had lost her husband very, very suddenly when her boys were very young. In fact, she was pregnant with one of them. And I think she was probably the most... Think the thing that she said to me that has that I carry with me and I hold on to in moments of absolute kind of crisis and despair and panic and um, of which there are many. Um, she said that she thinks that um, losing their father. I, I, I'm, I'm nervous about saying this because I don't want to misrepresent it or make it sound as if she's being the, in any way... The bit that you've held on to that's Glib or celebratory, but she said, I think the greatest qualities in my sons, their capacity for empathy, their humanity, their perspective, their capacity for love, she says, I don't think that they are in spite of their father's death. I think they're because of their father's death. Mm. And she didn't strike me as a remotely Pollyanna-ish type, and I'm certainly not a Pollyanna-ish type. <laughs> but I re- that that for me 
I really held on to the idea that it could be not in spite but because of gave me some kind of sense of hope or strength about it. That it deepens quite their that it hasn't capacity. It, yes, that it has deepened them rather their than broken with them. Love and life and exactly. perception about what matters. Because of course, my greatest fear is that it it, it leaves them kind of broken or somehow um, missing bits of them. But her belief was that it had fortified and expanded mm. and deepened them. Um, and if that could be true for my children, <laughs> it's funny, I realise I'm, I'm going to sound like a kind of cliche. If I could wish for anything <laughs> in the world, it would be that that could be true for my children. Mm. I can't think of anything I'd want more than that. No. Your other question was about things people say that are unhelpful. I don't think that troubles me most is the things that I think people don't say to me anymore. Yeah, that's interesting. And this, in a way, is the thing... It would be very difficult to draw up a list of the top ten things I hate most about being a widow. <laughs> that would be a ludicrous list, but... Probably be a bit longer. Yeah, I fear you're right. What I... Certainly something that would figure very near the top is this feeling of being exiled from normality and exiled from a sense of equality with the world. And don't get me wrong, I am incredibly appreciative and grateful of the fact that people do recognise that, you know, that my family has gone through something that most families don't and that that does put us in a slightly different category. And that it's true. And I'm I'm deeply appreciative. So I'm not taking issue with the premise. But the consequence of that is this slight feeling that um, I don't want to be special or different. Uh, and I do want and I want people to be able to bitch about their husbands to me. Oh, yeah. Do you see? Whisper. The so thing is well, that can't talk there about. There is a problem that mm. if you go through some very difficult stuff, people quite rightly think, well, what? Poor taste would it be for me to go around and sit at Decker's kitchen table bitching on about my husband. Luckily, as time goes on, this is, uh, this, is, this is no longer the problem that it was. But in the first couple of years, I became aware that people didn't want to give me, or actually any bad news, particularly bitching about husbands. But one of the problems was, this is what I mean about you cease to be normal, is that, and I quite rightly, and I would feel the same way, they think, I'm not going to go sit at Decker's kitchen table bitch about my job or the fact that I didn't get a promotion or the fact that my brother's got a nicer house than me or the fact that would be... But people aren't normal anymore. Exactly. And similarly, people, again, very rightly and understandably, would be reluctant to come around and go, oh, just met this amazing guy and we're going to Paris this weekend and, or I've just had this incredible promotion or... So people Best don't want to tell life. you... Precisely. People don't want to tell you good news and they don't want to tell you bad news. And I totally understand and respect... Why? Both those reasons. But that does leave you somewhat feeling isolated. It does compound your sense of isolation that you've been exiled to this strange colony you never wanted to be in. Club that you don't want to be a member You're of. defined by difference. And as I said, as, you know, with each passing week and month and year, that feels less so. And I'm incredibly relieved because, of course, I just want to be part of the normal world. But then you asked me earlier whether or not this had changed me, and, and I answered truthfully, I think it's changed everything about my internal world. So 
so I'm try- so the more that people can speak in an unfiltered, unguarded way without having to make concessions or allowances or consideration for my circumstances, the more normal I feel, and that helps. And connected. And connected, exactly. Um, so I think we're going to come to the end, and I, this may not be answerable, but if someone was listening to this podcast who, whose partner, whether it's a husband or a wife, has recently died, what would the early you have liked to have known? The trouble with the answer to that question um, is that the early me was told over and over and over again most of the things that I wish the early me had known. So I don't know how much me... I was more or less deaf to most of the most profound truths. It's not that people weren't trying to share them with me but that's helpful that you can only take in stuff there, when you're ready. it was a very very limited amount so um and lots of it um my absolute conviction that i would feel the way i did in the first six months forever was unshakable and no amount of people telling me that things will change and you won't feel like this forever couldn't have made less of a difference to me. I did not believe them. Um, It's not true that I feel okay or that I'm over it or that it's behind us or none of that's true, but I don't feel how I did then. The intensity's changed. It it just, it keeps changing. Um, So I wouldn't say to people, you will feel better, but I would say it will keep changing. That's what I say. It changes over time. Changes it. And I think maybe in my mind I thought people were telling me I'd feel okay. And I was not wrong to think that that wasn't true. true. But I was wrong to think that meant I'd feel the same. Hmm. Uh, And the other thing that everybody said to me, and they might as well not have bothered, and so I don't know why I'm repeating it now, because maybe everyone is deaf to this in their circumstances, but people kept saying, be kind to yourself. Don't expect I say that to people all the time. Do you? Yeah. Does anybody hear you? I don't know. Isn't it a funny thing? Well, Why? it's this horrible, peculiar cruelty of grief that people turn it against themselves. Absolutely. The guilt, the what ifs, the anger, the powerlessness. I did all of that. And I think I probably still do. You know, I couldn't sit here and say, oh, God, no, that's not me anymore. It's behind me. Yeah, it isn't. So it feels slightly ludicrous to now be saying to people, be kind to yourself. You know, they might as well have been speaking Russian to me for all that I could hear it. But I also recognised the truth of what they were saying. I think the added truth to that is that also all of our particular personality traits and mindsets, the fault lines erupt particularly strongly when something devastating happens. So we should be made differently that when you're most vulnerable, when you're most hurting, that actually your strengths come out, your the, the, the aspects of you that you're proud of and your confidence and your um, belief in yourself. But actually what happens when people are bereaved, and this would happen to everybody, but it, it has a spectrum is that you're much more aware 
of your fault lines, of your vulnerabilities, of your powerlessness, and it knocks people's confidence. Which And the other thing is that you're giving off signals of distress in your body, bodily, and so people are kind of wary of you. So what you need most is love and connection to others, and that helps you be kinder to yourself. And I think, you know, you've certainly said here that people have been amazing to you. But also to get through that barrier of... They're also scared. They're scared. They are scared. I think... the If I could change... I mean, I'd change everything if I could turn back the clock. But maybe the way to answer your question is not to say to people, be kinder to yourself, because certainly that just meant nothing to me. Maybe if it had been rephrased... Maybe I would have been as deaf to this as everything else. But if I could have just woken up the day after Tony died and thought, I am going to fail at everything for a really, really long time. Failure is going to now be my default setting. So there's no point being shocked or angry or frustrated or self-castigating or any of these things or even to try and do anything about it. You are going to fail consistently at everything. Everything you do. Everything. I love your absoluteness. There's no, there, if there's I no have, messing with you. There's could, no <laughs> middle way with Decker. Well, I think if I could have just sort of adjusted to that starting point, that expectation. You might have been more forgiving. What happens is when your entire world has fallen apart and you have lost the person at the heart of it and everything has gone wrong, you try then, you sort of try and you invest hope in the idea, well, at least other things can be okay or put in place or... And actually, they can't. And so I think I was just continually bewildered and angry and embarrassed and upset with myself. Why is everything else going wrong as well? Mm. Whereas if from that morning onwards, I had just, my expectation had been failure. Maybe. I might say things are difficult rather than failure. <laughs> I might slightly... <laughs> Flawed, that everything will be inadequate or flawed mm. or... Whereas I think I spent so long just horrified. How difficult it was. Or how inadequate I, or how unequal yeah. I was to this. And I'm very much blaming myself for everything then that I didn't do perfectly from that point onwards. Whereas if I could have started from an assumption, if I could somehow reset my expectations. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. To reset your expectations. I just that would then find it could, because hard you would to, be kind to go to along you. with absolute failure. <laughs> if I could have <laughs> um I think that might I don't know if I could have done that, but I think looking back now, if I could have tried to frame it like that, rather than just be kind to yourself. That didn't work. Be kind to yourself. It was meaningless to me. Yeah. What do you mean be kind to yourself? Look, I'm I'm messing up here. I'm messing up there. I'm letting my kids down in this way and that way. And be kind to myself. Are you kidding? Mm. Yeah, that. I wish I could have done that. As I say, I don't know if it would have worked or not, but I would, I'd, have, I'd be curious to give it a try and see. Maybe we can come back and do this again in a year and see what's changed. <laughs> yeah, that would be interesting. That would be really interesting. Thanks, Decker. Thank you, Julia. Thanks.